Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This podcast is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends, Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and artist Karen Blair. I'm Leslie Harris, and if you missed the special little episode from last week, my news is that Jeff and I are moving and we'll be starting a new garden. Well, I think it's me that'll be starting a new garden. He's he's not much on the gardening front, but he mows a very good lawn. Our guest this week is Nick McCullough, author with his wife Allison and Teresa Woodard of American Roots, Lessons and Information from the Designers Reimagining Our Home Gardens. And the playlist is about what to do, how to play in your garden this week, and what are some of the things you might want to keep an eye out for in your June garden. So we're pulling up stakes, Jeff and I, and since this sort of thing is done a lot, I thought I would update you with my progress. My garden here in Charlottesville is extensive. Most of it is nothing that anybody has to actively garden. The largest percentage of the biomass is the collection of mature trees, mostly tulip poplars and white oaks. So the new owner will not have to garden the trees, but that doesn't mean that they don't need some care. If you have, as this property does, trees large enough and close enough to hurt a house and therefore hurt people, I strongly suggest that you establish a relationship with a certified arborist who can help you keep your trees and the humans who live near the trees happy and healthy. Our arborist is a guy named Jason LaRose of Queen City Silviculture, and he knows trees, but more importantly, he knows my trees. He comes every year just to check on things, even if there's nothing active going on that he has to do. I'm going to make sure that the new owners look into hiring him, as I think he's the best one to take care of these trees, and therefore take care of the owners of the house that is very near the trees. Okay, safety is really important. If you're moving into a new place with large woodland creatures looming over your house, you might want to find that great arborist near where you live. Or maybe you've been there for a while and you're noticing that some of the specimens that were small a minute ago have grown up to be big. Planting new trees is wonderful, but in terms of benefits to our ecosystems, whatever we can do to maintain our older specimens is really valuable because a mature tree does so much for the ecology of your yard and your neighborhood. And one last note on trees before I get into what I've been doing to get ready for this move in general in my garden. Don't forget that when a tree dies, everything else starts to live. So if you have the luxury of leaving snag trees on your property, do yourself a favor and leave them. They can be really sculptural and fun to look at, but the amount of insects and therefore birds that you will have in your yard, it can give you hours of entertainment. Okay, so in general, what have I been doing to get ready for this move? I would be lying by omission if I didn't mention that there have been some tears. <laughs> I'll be pushing a wheelbarrow and all of a sudden, wow, 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 I'm so sad. But I'm past that stage now, and I'm determined to enjoy the garden every day until I leave it. I've already accomplished a lot in terms of preparation. By the time you hear this, the house is on the market. And my main early goals were to make sure that the potential buyers did not have to go through the stress of wondering if the previous owner was a lunatic. That could put some people off. So I've destroyed most of the evidence of compost piles, getting that number down to a sort of more manageable five instead of the ten. I also had to stop my kitchen composting, which was sad. Such a weird thing to put a banana peel in a garbage can. Our garbage from the kitchen had been going into a tumbler, and that's just not a great display thing at a real estate showing, so I cleaned it up and I hope to be able to use it at my next place. The next obviously crazy thing to deal with was my lawn spiral. So charming, but a little bit weird. It turns out that I just couldn't cut it down. My plan was to weed whack it back and then rake it and then mow it, but I quickly realized upon weed whacking 
that the bottom six inches or so of grass were just, it was just different. It was beautiful, healthy, shaded stuff that I could tell did not want the severe haircut in one go. I mean, I don't know much about grass, but it just looked like it would burn if I took it away all at once. So now it's sort of a stubby, adorable spiral. You can definitely tell what it's supposed to be, and I'll get it down to the level of the lawn gradually. Supplies. So I had some fertilizers that I really haven't been using because my idea of feeding my garden has evolved to be just compost and have that be a natural way of enhancing my soil. But I have some leftover plant food, and I wouldn't want that stuff to go into a landfill, all concentrated. So I've begun to disperse it at about a quarter of the recommended rate. I'm no scientist, but I'm hopeful that most of the high nitrogen products do not end up in our waterways because I'm spreading it so slowly here. I hope that's not just magical thinking. Oh, and in case you're wondering what is so bad about organic fertilizers ending up in our waterways, I think I've mentioned it before, but just as a reminder, they mess up the ecosystem where they land, resulting in algae blooms and other things that wouldn't have ordinarily taken place. And these things can negatively impact nature miles away. It'll be so interesting to see what sort of person ends up here. Chances are more than decent that they're not a crazy gardener like you and I are. And I realize that I could be a little crazier than some of you out there listening. Let's, I mean, let's be realistic. So then if the new owner isn't a crazy gardener, I hope that he or she understands how simple some of this garden is, even though it looks complicated. You all know because you're gardeners that the easiest way to take care of your land is shrubs. And the most fun, easy way to have a low-maintenance flower garden is to have flowering shrubs. Most people don't understand that grass is actually much more work. But it's true that there's some very high-maintenance beds here, and I would be grateful to be in the position to be able to guide the next owner as to how to simplify it if he or she is looking for guidance. As I was looking forward to aging in this garden, I knew that I would be replacing some of the more intricate perennial beds with, yes, you guessed it, flowering shrubs. They are just the magical, easy way to garden. I knew that trick, the trick about flowering shrubs, when I started gardening here nine years ago, and I think I've planted like a couple of hundred hydrangeas and azaleas. I planted a lot of these in three or even one-gallon pots, so I filled the space between them with ferns and hostas and heucheras and stillbees and other ground-cover-type shade plants. Oh, lots of epimedium, too. And they're now essentially hidden by the shrubs as they've gotten more mature. So I've got to go on a treasure hunt to make sure I get little pieces of all my favorite types of the ferns and etc. to pot them up so that I can take them with me to put in my next garden or to share with friends and family. Lots of them are impossible to see at this stage because the shrubs have become the green mulch that I planted those lower guys to be. I recently had my 40th UVA reunion, which, by the way, is where I left my voice back at that dinner on the lawn, we had a house full of classmates, and I sent them home with little slips of some of my favorite things. What a joy it is to have some of this garden go to Baltimore, to Raleigh, and to Sullivan's Island, South Carolina. I firmly believe that sharing plants is one of the most fun things about gardening. If you're a good gardener with a deft hand, you can always take a piece of a perennial. I tell gardener friends who need things to just come and take exactly what they want, and the only way they could mess it up is if I could see what they've done. You should be able to do it so that nobody even knows you took something from the back of the plant or from under a branch. You just artfully get your little snip and your little root, and then you're on your way with something wonderful that you've gotten from a friend. In the spirit of taking what I want in terms of plants, 
I've taken a hard look at some of my containers. If they're not presenting me with a good look, then that plant material has been submitted to the compost pile and replaced by some plants that I know I would find difficult to replace once I move. Here's an example. I am so amazed to look at my huge Empress Wu Hosta. I'm staring at it as I type this, but she has got to stay here, and I know I can shop for her at a lot of different places. I'll be a little sad to start off with something that is not her size now, which is about six feet across and three feet tall, but gardening is patience, right? There are three other hostas that I've actually never seen any place, except for some crazy mail order sale that I got lucky on, and they're tiny, tiny miniature hostas. There's a medium green one, a variegated green and white one, and a lime green one, and I'm talking mini, mini, mini. Each of these plants is about two inches in width and an inch tall, so small. So pieces of each of these have been tucked into a massive pot that has a Fatsia japonica, and so those with the Fatsia are easily making the travel team. Here's something that will not make the travel team. Well, at least not this time. I have a baby boxwood parterre that is made from cuttings that I propagated from my parterre garden in Connecticut. So nine years ago, those babies all came down the Jersey Turnpike and 29 South and ended up in this garden. And I've enjoyed fiddling with them ever since, but it's time for me to let them go. And depending on the type of gardener who moves in, I would not recommend keeping that area unless they love the look of it. And then it's a matter of putting in the time or money to maintain it or have it maintained. My friend Marianne Wilburn talks about how she makes decisions each fall when she's bringing in tender plants. She recommends getting a little Marie Kondo going on, and I think that's what I'm going to have to do as I pull up stakes here. I must keep my eye on the ball in terms of wanting a simpler garden, and I must remember that shopping is an option. So I'm going to concentrate only on my favorite, favorite, favorite plants that would be difficult to replace through shopping. Okay, so now you're sort of up to date on the process. Who's going to buy this house? How long before they move in? These are all questions that need to be answered to guide me so that I can understand how this thing ends. I want to leave it looking good for the next people, but not if they're about to blow it up. It'll be a process, and you can stay with me on it. Meanwhile, my friend Karen Blair, who is a Charlottesville-based painter, paints exuberant, abstract, and bold canvases with color and shapes. She takes commissions And I've got to tell you that I have been told that my Christmas present this year is going to be this garden that we're leaving on a huge, wonderful Karen Blair canvas. And I cannot tell you how excited I am. Coming up, we're going to be talking with Nick McCullough about his fabulous new book on American gardens called American Roots. And like all of my chats, we begin with this book and then we go lots of places down many garden paths. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie, and I am here with Nick McCullough, who wrote this fabulous book that got on my radar called American Roots. He and his wife, Allison, wrote it. And then you find out, okay, well, what's this guy, what else has this guy been up to? And it's like, oh, the answer is plenty. Um, He was, I think he was a gardener, but you started out in agriculture or horticulture, like growing up? In horticulture, well, I don't know, it's hard. Where where was the beginning, right? Um, right? I don't know, really agriculture if you look back to my childhood because I grew up on a strawberry farm so cool you know it's really like I, I didn't really have a choice in the matter and you know <laughs> it was subconsciously ingrained in there anyway so yeah I mean it's always agriculture is my family's background my 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 larger family and my parents have always been very entrepreneurial so um you know it was growing up on a family strawberry farm for the first um, like eight ten years of my life 
and then it was it was horticulture from there and always gardening with my mom in the garden and vegetable gardening and uh, being around my grandparents who, who did it as well. So the real deal in terms of, you know, homeschool experience, but then you went and studied, right? It didn't stop there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I studied, um, I actually started in landscape architecture at Ohio, the Ohio State University. <laughs> and so um, I started landscape architecture and I, you know, I quickly fell in love or maybe I was just um, thought that's what I wanted to do from a young age. That's what I was I want to do. But I realized I was just in a lot of engineering, like that's a very broad career. And so but I found I took a survey of the horticultural industry as a class. Um, it was my freshman year. And I found like that's what I really wanted to do. I really wanted to be very plant focused. And so I switched to horticulture after doing a lot of my prereqs for landscape architecture, which is a lot that first year. So Ooh. it wasn't a wasted year, but it, it didn't help me get ahead. But those are the foundation of things that I ended up using as I went to my you know, design career. And so and then I was very fortunate as I got further along at Ohio State, and I was able to go to England and study and have a design a certificate from a college there called Myers Co College um, in the Lake District. And it is an unbelievably beautiful setting. And I like that. I learned from uh, just osmosis, just soaking in all this amazing, you know, everything that surrounds you at the time. And like it was like two days in the classroom, three days garden visiting. Oh, wow. How could you turn that down? No, you can't turn that down. How, were you a young man? That Was Allison part of the deal then? Or? Uh, well, Allison, our high school sweetheart. So she was always part of the oh, deal. And But Allison yay. went to Indiana and um, has a finance and marketing background. And I went the horticulture artsy route. And I studied fine arts and history of art as my minor. Cool. And how long did you study in England? Uh, it was, you know, it was an extended summer um, period. So, you know, it, it feels like a lifetime, but um, yeah. it was really a short time period. But, you know, you create friendships for a lifetime right. and those experiences and, and, and really got to see so, so much that set me on a path, um, you know, of aesthetics and some things you have to see to believe. And I think seeing and traveling, certainly travel is my, the best way to get inspiration. That was, you know, major travel. I agree. And you've provided that travel, um, ironically, all about America and not England. It's it's funny. I feel like a lot of American gardeners sort of fall in love with English gardening and then have to figure out a way to translate that for themselves. It's so true. I mean, you know, the American garden is truly a melting pot just as much as our culture is. A lot of times we're one generation, two generations removed from, you know, our previous heritage or uh, nationality. And so, you know, a lot of times that is the case. You look at these influences that come from Europe or come from England, it feels natural to us because, you know, maybe it is ingrained in our culture subconsciously already. And I also love Gardens Illustrated. I love these magazines that, you know, that influence us greatly. But I think as much as we are as a culture, a melting pot, we're a melting pot of um, garden aesthetics as well. But our climate being so broad and so large and just the different regions of our country is what makes us so, so unique. I agree with that. Then, so, so what's your goal when you set out to write this book, you and Allison? Was it <laughs> the goal to define the American garden, or just to find it, or define it? I mean, is it too broad to define? Maybe too broad. I mean, you don't get to the end of the book and say this is what it is, right? I mean, right. because it's so many things to so many people, and I think that is still the amazing part. I think that the biggest thing was to showcase the amazing talents and the wide range of amazingly beautiful gardens that we have. Even though this is a case study of 20 gardeners across different regions of the country, it was really to show like, hey, we're not just a country that 
you know, chemically treats our lawn from fence post to fence post. And there's so much other amazing um, aspects of, of garden design and, and influence. And certainly a lot of these gardeners were, were influenced through their travels as well. But what they bring back, I mean, that's any anything you do, right? Architecture, um, food, you're influenced by where you travel to. And I think that's why what's so amazing is these collection of gardeners through their different backgrounds have created these really amazing gardens. So clearly, I don't know if there were 20 different themes or 20 different sets of tastes, but you know, it was very disparate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was a uniting theme as you went from place to place? Besides gin and tonics, I hear there were a lot of gin and tonics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think gardeners and gin and tonics go hand in hand. Truthfully, I think so. It's, it's, it's kind of a culinary thing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a, juni- it's a juniper. Right? It's a juniper. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We we have a whole presentation that we give about this, and there were these really amazing themes that we saw. And one of two two that really stood out to us was the use of gravel in gardens was a, a really um, surprising thing, you know, going into this, we didn't know every aspect of every garden. You know, a lot of these people were, were friends from Instagram, a number I had met in person, but a lot of, you know, this was happening, this happened during COVID. So yeah, it was a COVID book. It was a COVID book. It's our COVID baby. Right. And so it was 2021. We shot it from basically Memorial day to labor day. So late May to early September. And so these were gardens that I, you know, it was still COVID. We're still travel restrictions were just lifted, and so these are people's. You know, I'm entering someone's garden, right? And everyone had a different level of comfort with that, and so it was like it was friends I called up that I knew that had amazing gardens I'd been in. And I'm like, hey, can we feature your, your garden? And those were easy. Some of people they were purely social media friends, right? And so I I feel like I know them so well, and it's vice versa, things like that. But it was like hey, can I come visit your gardens? So it was really interesting in how we, I, I completely strayed from like the question here, but um, <laughs> how that all came about, um, you know, it was that different level of comfort and how, and how we um, got to be there. But, and also geographical was a big thing. We wanted to make sure we had a good selection from across the country and in particular Midwest as well. But is there something that pulls all those gardens? Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. So we're back. So, so the gravel. So we found a, a number of people had um, a number of these really innovative gardeners who were using gravel through you know, a really traditional gravel garden like, like uh, Jeff Epping okay. in Mass, Wisconsin with a Beth Chatto style garden. Yeah, I was going to say. So, you know, really done by the book to, you know, using gravel in Big Sur, California with Elizabeth and her, her garden that just hangs on the hillside overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And her use of gravel there has, you know, multi-function, low water usage and n- not using lawn or anything like that. Also things like fire protection, those sorts of things. So it's really innovative in how people were using them. And, and I think putting gravel in a garden is one thing that really helps to age it really quickly. Mm-hmm. It gives it a patina, gives it a feel that um, feels older than what it is. And it's also really permeable as well. And I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot here is just these rain being sparse to just a deluge of excess water. And so being able to soak that up and not have it run directly off. And um, that's what we're seeing is, and then uh, ease of maintenance, even though we all love the garden, we don't want to necessarily uh, work on it, you know, every hour of the free time that we have. And so, um, you know, that using that gravel is a great way of of sustaining, you know, through gardening. I'm going to put your I'm going to put your feet to the fire in terms of technical. I know I'm I'm going to have a listener out there, and I and and I'm sort of there. I mean, 
I haven't been to Beth Shadow's garden. I've seen a million photographs of it. I have a little gravel garden myself. I have gravel paths mm -hmm. and that's where all the things seed because they love gravel. But what is a technical way to actually garden with gravel? The technical aspect of, of, of gravel gardening is, is really stripping away all the organic matter. And so you really, the top four inches of that gravel garden is really inhospitable for any weed seed that blows in. So basically you're, you're planting um, the root zones of these perennials sub gravel completely. And then these perennials are pushing through. And it's also really important to keep all organic matter out of that area as well. So basically these perennials roots are down below this inhospitable layer of gravel that, you know, weeds you if it does blow in, doesn't get a chance to get down to the, the good soil. And so when you do that, a lot of times you, you wash the soil off, you're bringing no contaminants in. So you're stripping away all the top soil at the top of the perennial as you're planting it from like a plug or like a gallon or, or quart size. And then you're washing those roots and putting them, planting them, and then bringing that gravel all the way up around the crown of that plant. So it is very intense on the installation side, but really gives a great product long-term. And have, you're a garden designer. Have you done this? Have you installed this? You know, it's funny. I haven't jumped that head first into the deep end. I use a lot of gravel. It is the next thing on my list because I was so inspired by Dan and Peggy Ann have one, um, Jeff Epping, you know, Elizabeth. Um, so yeah, so it's one of those things that it's the next thing. It's the next thing. It's the next thing. Yeah. So have you been tempted? Because I know you have a lot of garden rooms in your personal mm -hmm. garden. Mm -hmm. Have you been tempted to just set aside a little corner? I have. I have the corner. Yeah, it's it has a place set there right now as my kids are aging up. Oh, they need to grow up. Come on. TikTok. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> they don't use it at all, right? It's a relic. And so, yeah, so once it's gone, I think that is going to become the gravel garden for sure. So, well, I have to tell you about my tiny little gravel garden. It's about six by six. Okay. And it was full of Pachysandra. And I was like, well, this is the least interesting plant ever. So, and it has a funny little Ilex cronata, which I cloud pruned into okay. something that reminded me of something in Asia. I don't know. Sure. And then I had this little Japanese stool that I put there. And the only thing that's planted in this garden are three separate designs, sort of wavy lines of black Mondo grass. Oh, I love it. It's yeah. very zen, um, yeah. but yet it's tiny and in the middle of chaos. I didn't strip away any soil, but, and I was a little unsure, Nick, because, so I'm like, okay, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. And I'm the kind of person who does not read the directions. So I just did it. Yeah. But where the roots meet the top of a plant and where you generally, mm -hmm. you know, have that soil, if you're planting, yeah, you have that crown. soil comp, the mm -hmm. crown, thank you. That's the right word. Aren't we supposed to make sure that there's air accessible so that, are we not smothering something there? Yeah. With the gravel though, um, you look at these alpine gardens and if you, you know, you study these, um, you hike into these areas in which these things are growing naturally, there's, there's really not, it's the roots are so deep and they're pushing up through and that gravel is really, it's not smothering it. It's different if that was topsoil or clay where it could rot, Yes. but there is a lot of air exchange there because the pores are so big. I mean, you're talking big, big areas. Um, and generally you use a, a gravel that is more rounded. That's not angular. So it doesn't pack down. So I think I stumbled into it by accident. Yay me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what gardening is? It's a yeah. happy accidents all the time, right? all the time all the time all right so that so that was your theme was there any sort of more spiritual or aesthetic theme that that might have reached most of those 20 gardeners 
Yeah, well, I think everyone, um, ecology-wise, you know, you know. Oh, good. It's more. Oh, I mean, it's more than just you know, it's more than just gardening for beauty. It's it's like giving back to the the greater area, um, giving back to the wildlife. And I I think we all have this such personal exchange with our gardens, right? Uh, you know, we we live in them. We use them as a you know outdoor living spaces. Truly, truly, and so the giving back for the greater good is you know, of the space is, I think, really something that really stuck with me. How much life and how much amazing beauty was coming from this as well. And kind of, this, you know, and I think it's one of those things, it's like sustainability, but this rewilding of giving, you know, creating an area for your for your garden that is more than just for you. It's for, for the neighborhood. It's for the pollinators. And so I think that aspect, like uh, Peter and Stevens in upstate New York, John Holmes just outside New York City, uh, Sakonic Gardens with Johnny and Michael and their their Pollinator Plus gardens. These gardens that just are uh, so so gorgeous in their aesthetics, but really give back so much more. And I think that's that's something we certainly need a lot more of. And you know, these garden innovators are 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 really good at. It. They make it look effortless. Certainly, if we could just use one little section of that as inspiration, and if everyone did that, how much better a place we'd be in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, it's your garden, but it's our world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, those are those are broad sweeping themes. I mean, gosh, just the people, the inspiration, the found objects, the, the art, just everything they incorporate. Like is, these are just some of the best pulled together gardens I've ever been in. But also I think is really attainable. I think there's a learning from all these gardens that, you know, there's these are not gardens that were installed by big companies. These are in general gardens that were created by the owners. And I should say, not everyone in this book, they're not garden designers. They're who I call garden creatives. They come from different backgrounds. Sometimes it's second career, sometimes retirement, sometimes it's their weekend hobby. And so, you know, everything in here, the, the important part, the, the pillars on which we built this book on, and I, by we, uh, it's Allison, my wife, and, and Teresa Woodard, who really helped in the writing on this section was that we have beautiful images. It's about the gardener and their and, and you know the story they're telling, and then these tangible learnings. So these tangible learnings, um, we really wanted to break down these gardens as something that you could take away and easily, you know, put in your own garden. And you know, and because we really wrote it for a broad range as well, you know, for the started gardener where you can just get inspiration, but also people who really love the botanical names. So we use botanical names. We try to break down these plant lists as much as possible. So there is there's really good takeaways. I am the proud owner of this book. Yes, and in are. fact, a signed copy because I got to meet Nick and Allison down in South Carolina last month. So I've been enjoying it greatly. Let's drill down into my favorite gardener of your book, who is Erin Shannon, the impatient gardener. Oh, Erin, yes, yes. Besides, I'm sure she makes a mean gin and tonic. What what did you what were your takeaways from that garden? Well, I, you know, Erin is. I mean. Anyone who's followed Aaron, and if you're not following Aaron, follow the Impatient Gardener. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Aaron's so good at, she's so resourceful, right? And she's the quintessential kind of Midwesterner because she doesn't take no for an answer or she's not afraid to experiment and try. And I think what's amazing about Erin is that she shares every bit of information that she she gains through her, through her Instagram, through her YouTube. And like, that's, that's amazing. And that's a theme that ran throughout is, you know, how amazing, how amazing people are sharing this information, but Aaron in particular, 
she has a, a, this one area in particular I'm thinking of. Um, she has her, her house, a window box, and then this this border in which she really flips every year. She has the components that stay there, but she really does a new display or a similar display every year of of tubers um, from her dahlias to her her annuals that she sows and. So her tapestry that she weaves together of these annual or, or really um, tender displays are just unbelievable in their texture and their color. And yeah, and so that's the major theme that I think Erin is like, she, yeah, she's impatient, but man, she's really good at it. That's for sure. <laughs> she's, she, she excels at being impatient. <laughs> she excels. And what I love is she shares her her triumphs and her failures. And, and her failures, yeah, she absolutely does. Gardening is failing, right? If you haven't failed at least 10 times, you haven't been gardening. Oh my gosh, I'm so good at that part. That's that's where I excel. Um, let's talk about your business more. Yeah. What came first, the chicken or the egg, the design part or the nursery part? Yeah, well, um, it was the design part for sure. Hey, I was really fortunate. I mean, I had to basically, you know, really pay my way through college. And so you know, my parents helped me certainly, but I, you know, for me to finish off the degree, I, you know, I had to earn money. And so I really, I worked full-time and, and studied full-time um, through my college career. And so this was a company that started, you know, probably, you know, subcon. I was mowing yards when I was like eight years old, pushing around. My parents bought me. I, I, no, I think I was 10 actually. I was going to say, you got to have some, there's a physics behind that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was big enough. It was safe, but I was, I was push mowing lawns as as a little kid. Um, And I saw that and that, you know, that having that extra cash in your pocket when you're younger is, is powerful. And so um, then I played, uh, I played high level sports all the way through high school and things like that. So I couldn't really get a conventional job because as we all know, anyone has kids, you know, these demands of practice and, you know, is really, is really high. So I had to have something that, that was, could be very flexible. So I worked and our motto was always good work leads to more work. So as we do it the best you can, it's, it's just going to be more. So I started hiring my friends. We were mowing lawns. We were doing garden maintenance. And then I really thought like, Hey, I really want to do this. And that's when my Ohio state career came into play and everything just started to accelerate good work built on top of, of, of more work. And so by the time I got out of college, I had 25 employees. Wow. Our area in which I, we, I grew up in, um, northeast side of Columbus, was really growing very rapidly. And so there was a lot of business here. And so then, you know, we went from, you know, basically mowing lawns and, and you know, doing some small installation to some really technical things, um, you know, really high-level garden design. And again, we kind of built on the foundation, which we created early on with this, this garden maintenance is what we call fine garden care. Now Yes, we're not landscapers. We do, we do fine gardening and that's half our company. So right now we have about 40 employees and half do well, a little bit more than half do um, fine garden care. And the rest are, 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 are installation craftsmen who are building these projects. And, you know, we, in any given year we could install, 10 jobs or we could just be on two depending on the scale some of our gardens are quite large Uh so yeah so we're very fortunate we've really honed or really found our niche um, within the market we only do high-end residential garden design yeah i should say that we uh, we have one project oak grove or jorgensen farms which is a commercial wedding venue but it's really run more like a um it's more run like a residential and, and it's fine gardening. That's, that's the fun part, right? No, no mowers, no blowers. Just, yeah. Just yeah. I stuff. mean, the fine gardening is, is amazing. We do have a crew that mows. And the only reason we do that is because we want to control the quality 
Oh. We want to make sure that we, um, when we show up, that there's no surprises. So our, really our motto is one, one phone call for a client. That way they, you know, we're fully in control. They just, they turn over to us and our goal is that make sure they have a beautiful garden to come home to and don't have anything to worry about. What kind of conversations are you able to have with your clients about sustainability? Does, do you have to explain that sort of thing or do you just... No, I, you know, right now, I mean, 10 years ago, yeah. Um, now, no. I mean, it's forefront with everyone, right? Um, they certainly think about it. Yeah. And we're very fortunate that our clients, um, like I said, turn over the keys essentially where they let us make these decisions to best impact their garden. And I like to think we're really in the forefront of, of innovation and how we're doing things and how we're, we're caring for people's gardens uh, for the greater good of giving back and, and taking care of being more of a steward of the land instead of, you know, just using it up. And so, um, so yeah, we use a lot of really cool products, you know, very light on the chemical footprint is always our goal. And so are we fully organic? No, because certainly there's times when, you know, if you need to intercede with something like oak wilt, where you need to preserve a 200-year-old oak tree, we'll, we'll step in and do that with the least um, impactful way possible. And we're very fortunate to have, um, you know, certified arborists on staff, those sorts of things. So we bring high-level horticulture into this as well. So um, all the scientific part and all the beautiful kind of artistic background as well. That's wonderful. And then, so how did the plants part start? Because you're a nursery also. Yeah. Uh, well, really, the plants started because of my travels. I would see these cultivars, these species in Europe, and a lot of times there were American natives that had gone there, and but we weren't using them here. I was really blown away by that as you know, fresh out of college and traveling, and then you know, I just got to the point where like, well, we can, we can grow that. I mean, I don't know. There's nothing special about it. So um, we built a, a nursery in which we grow all these species uh really cool cultivars american natives uh, we do we do a lot of container gardening for our clients as well so we use a lot of uh, uh really interesting annuals as well and so mm -hmm. we we grow them and we don't have a retail nursery it's only for our own consumption and it makes it great because we we get to develop our own palette every year and we have our staples in which we use but like early on there was no grower um, using something like autumn or grass hysteria autumnalis or uh, prairie drop seed i couldn't buy it from anywhere and so, because at the time it was like a lot of miscanthus, a lot of penstem, and I'm like, I don't want to use those plants. So we started growing these plants in good volume. And any given year, you know, or any project, I'm working on a project right now, I was designing right before we jumped on them. You know, I need like 700 um, Cecilaria autumnalis. And like, there's not many vendors that can supply that. So knowing that we ramp up, we, we grow what we need. A lot of times we have a little bit of lead time, we can grow a little extra, but we have these staples of plants that, that we grow Basically, I know what I'm going to sell, right? And, um, and yeah. I know what I want to use. So That's control. Yeah, it's control. It's great. And it was great during COVID because, you know, supply chain, crazy thin on the plant side. Oh, yeah. And so it also allows us to grow things in a really sustainable. We recycle all of our plastic. We reuse our pots. That's great. For up to, you know, I would say most of our pots are five to seven years old. So we're getting every ounce of life out of them. Um, yeah. And so we can, you know, as an industry, develop a better technology outside of plastic pots. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we're we're really reusing. We're really kind of innovating in that way. And we have a fantastic grower, Brent, who is um, just taking us to the next level. He's been with us for about a year and a half now. And so, you know, we could get to the point where we uh, we sell a little bit of our pallet off to um, consumers, to our friends who follow us. Um, yeah. but, but right now it's really for our own consumption. 
So you get around a lot. You do a lot of speaking. Yep. You're promoting your book, mm-hmm. and and you you know you know this industry. You were born into this industry. Yeah. When you you just mentioned that you're recycling your own pots, and that maybe someday you know that'll be easier. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any leads on on the industry? I, I you know I read my Green Talks magazine that comes and blah blah. What are you seeing in terms of the future on that? Because, wow, that's a lot of plastic out there. Oh, man, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're the green industry, but, man, we create a lot of waste, don't we? Mm-hmm. And so um, the Association of Professional Landscape Designers, APLD, has an initiative to help develop that right now, and that's in the works as well. I think there's some amazing things I've seen with, like, rice fibers and cocoa fibers that are being uh, molded that are so biodegradable pots. Is that more sustainable? You know, what is the breakdown period? I think, you know, I think we're really coming into a, a play of something that um, if we can develop these plant-based um, kind of plastics that do break down and don't leave any residual um, later mm-hmm. after their life, I think is really amazing. Mm-hmm. We just got to use our technology that we have and maybe not shoot off to space, but stay local, stay in this, in this planet and, and figure out how we handle plastics for sure. So there's money out there that we just no kidding. I mean, this is a whole new industry that somebody is whoever figures this one out is going to make themselves a boatload that and desalinating water. Gosh, just yeah, we can figure out how to make that economical. Yeah, cold fusion and, and is another one. Yeah, yeah, these are all doable. Come on, get on it. Yeah, you got do a it. lot of energy. It's not me. Um, but there's <laughs> definitely people out there. I work for people who can do that, though. That's for sure. <laughs> so tell me this. Let's talk some real plants now. Actually, I have a question about when it first dawned on you, like, wait, why can't we grow that? Yeah. Do you remember anything in particular? It'd be fun to think that you thought that was unusual then, and it was, and now it's normal for us? Yeah, I was at one of the, the flower shows back, I, I don't think it's Tatton Park or Hampton Court Flower Show, and it was a summertime. And- some of the variegated hackamacloa and like, oh, cool. like now they're like hackneyed hackamacloa <laughs> yeah anywhere but at the time it was like I'm that, what like i want this and so i flew i flew back with it i washed all the soil off i did all the usda stuff you had to do declared it and i fl- flew back from england with hackamacloa in my bed you know this is 25 years ago now like i was like oh it's amazing yeah so i i've been very fortunate um i was able to walk pete rudolph's garden humello with him um one morning, oh. one July morning. Wow. Yeah, and it was the Sandu Sorbas. I think it was Red Thunder, I believe is a cultivar he had in his garden. Okay. Like, oh, it's so, so, so beautiful. Like, Burnett's is the common name, right? Yeah, exactly. So Erin's really into those. Erin Shannon, it goes back to her. And because of her, I did a favor for her, something to do with Great Dixter, a Great Dixter mug. And she sent me, she sent me a gift certificate to Annie's annuals. And I'm like, well, she's always talking about these brunettes. What the heck? I'm going to try some. So this will be my first spring. I can't remember what I got, but, but a couple different kinds. I mean, they're amazing. Yeah, they're super cool. Um, Oryngiums. I love oryngiums from agavifolium, yuccafolium. Do those self-seed for you? No, not really. Well, yuccafolium can. Yeah. I'm pretty good about, you know, basically harvesting the seed heads when they're at, when they're about ready to fall. And then what I'll do is I'll go throw them in a native area that needs some more oryngium, you know. You know, the thing is they need a really aggressive kind of area that keeps them in check, right? So they're they're great around other grasses. They're great in areas in which they're not the most competitive. And certainly they can seed around in a really high fertility area because they really come from a very low fertility kind of soil. And I think that's the important part about it is sometimes we make our beds too rich and these perks melt out or move or become weedy because of that. And so we keep our beds pretty lean to keep things in check that way. And also, they're pretty easy to to hoe out in the springtime. You know, if you did if you didn't get some deadheading, but you know, once the birds are have kind of 
fluffed away and I see the, the extra residual of all the seeds there, I'll just clip them into a paper bag and then I'll just go, you know, I'll go broadcast them around. A little bit of my guerrilla gardening around town. <laughs> Reestablish these, these natives one by one. So you take a walk at night, like with, you know, a hooded sweatshirt on and just spread seeds. Yeah, we're, we're really lucky. We have a, a great a great park across the street that has a meadow that I'm like slowly reestablishing with natives that no one knows about. I'm loving this scenario. Like, okay, he goes over lace at night. Yeah, and spreads yeah. I go in a over. black sweatshirt and I go broadcast Rinchiem <laughs> Yucca Folio. A little sketchy, but wonderful at the same time. And Rebecca Maxima. Oh, I love that plant. <laughs> What is your personal philosophy on, because, you know, you talked about hackland grass and then and then these wonderful natives. What's your philosophy on natives versus aliens that are obviously non-invasive and that sort of thing? Oh, my gosh. There's great plants out there that don't impact, you know, our, they give back so much as well, right? Um, and so, like, sure, don't plant invasives. Um, a lot of time, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You look at... Well, miscanthus. Miscanthus, right? It was brought over with, with good intentions, right? Mm-hmm. But then is now, you know, eventually got to the point where it starts seeing around. No, I think there's great plants that have been here for over a hundred years that have been proven not to move around and are fantastic things that give back a lot to our environment, right? So I'm not a, a native purist by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's a blend of both worlds mm-hmm. where you have a, a beautiful product, but also that gives back so much to the, the greater ecology. Yeah, no, um, I'm not a, has to be 100% native by any stretch of the imagination. It's certainly not the case. Um, I love salvia. You know, I love most salvia. Salvia cardona is one of my favorite perennials and um, calametha montrose white. And those aren't, you know, Great, classified yeah. as n- native perennials, but what they give back to my garden is, you know, exponential. So, yeah. 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 So good. I like, I like, I like people who agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> You're a very smart man, Nick. <laughs> I love it how, how you inspire people to literally the name of your blog, but you're not, you're too busy to post on much, but <laughs> literally called thinking outside the box would. And so in your talks, in this book, a message, you know, Instagram, you know, you have a very good following. You want to get this message out to people that it's, um it's, it's a bigger look than you, than you might have in your head, right? You want to mm-hmm. introduce some innovation. Is that, is that what you're trying to do? Yeah. I think it comes back to inspiration through travel, things like that. And, um, you know, a garden's an ever living thing. And like, I think the thing I'm most fearful of is being stagnant. Right. So um, not being afraid to edit and, and think big, you think for those, those big picture things um, certainly is, is how we love to inspire. Yeah, that's really good. So Nate McCullough, and the name of the book is American Roots, Lessons and Inspiration from Designers Reimagining Our Home Gardens. And I really like that title, the extended title. You know, it's a lot of words, but- It's a lot of words. (laughs) It's a lot of words, but it's it's a good definition because you really delve deep into all these personalities, right? Yeah. Well, I think so. And and that's it. It's it's personalities. We're, We're all so different, but we speak the language of plants, right? And I think that's an amazing thing. I think that's what's so amazing about the gardening world is- it's very big, right? And yeah, but we, you know, you can speak to someone in England, you can speak to someone in, in Japan that have the same interest, and you know, an acer is an acer no matter where you are, right? right and right. and that's really that's a really amazing thing. So yeah, we're just constantly inspired. People travel to Europe for garden inspiration, but man, we have it here too. And yeah, that's really yeah. one of the things that we want to showcase. And there's certainly pockets of, of uh, you know high intensity gardening. You think about kind of the, the greater Philadelphia area and the American oh, yeah. garden capital 
and how many amazing public gardens there are, um, but it's these private gardens that a lot of people don't get to get into that I've been very fortunate to get into over the years um, that are have so much inspiration. And so, you know, gardening is my sport. It's my profession. It's my sport. It's my hobby. It's all of it, right? <laughs> and so when we go on vacations, we're constantly looking up, you know, where to go and what to see. And we walk neighborhoods and get some inspiration. And it could be a fence, you know, idea, or it could be, you know, a mass planting of agave Americana that we saw in Austin, Texas, you know. And so, yeah, so it's one of those things that inspiration is everywhere. And and we have it in spades here in America. And and we just want to showcase, say how proud we are of an American gardener, for sure. I think you did a great job. It's a great book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nick, for chatting with me today. It was great to talk to you. We'll be right back in a minute to talk about what to do in your garden this week. Are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered to your front door. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties as well as old favorites. And their website makes plant shopping easy. You can use filters to figure out things like zone and light and color and more. And once you're ready to order, you can select your own shift date. If you're worried about shipping plants in the mail, don't worry. They arrive in great condition and anyway, they're guaranteed. As a listener of this show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code GARDENWITHLESLY. So go to greatgardenplants.com and check it out. I encourage you to have a look for Nick's book. It's wonderful, and it's not just the photographs that are good. There's some really good information in it. Oh, and also, he has this blog on his website called Thinking Outside the Boxwood. I flipped around in there and enjoyed it. I think my favorite was two posts that he did on touring Bunny Williams' garden, which is a favorite of mine. You can look for links to all this stuff on my blog that goes along with this podcast on lhgardens.com. Questions from listeners. Becky wrote and she said she had a problem with growing rosemary. I'm so lucky that mine did not get nabbed by those really low temperatures this past year at Christmas. And indeed, it is a perennial for me. I grow a sort of a horrible, I don't know, does it want to be a lollipop, but it isn't quite. It seems that my pruning skills are not up to making this particular rosemary on my property look good. But I enjoy it anyway. Sometimes you can purchase a lovely rosemary that's been started as a topiary. The only trouble with that is if they've been pruned to perfection, then you're afraid to snip something off for your lamb chops. So that's where I had the advantage because mine is so ugly. It reminds me of me cutting my own bangs. It's not good, but then again, who notices a few more snips? I recommended to Becky that she move what she calls her Charlie Brown rosemary plant to a pot with some really well-draining soil. A clay pot is even better. Think about where so many herbs are happy in their native range, and that is the Mediterranean. We're talking heat and sun and dry. Basil isn't one of those. And FYI, I do love my basil, but it needs some water. But anyway, rosemary wants dry, lean soil. And if you have that, it's great. But if not, you can easily recreate it in a container. Oh, I wanted to tell you about a really fun experience that I had last week. Linda Vodder of Potager Blog was in town for a wedding and she and I chat sometimes on Instagram. She's been on the podcast before and contributed to some of my collaborative episodes. Well, I was so honored that she took a couple of hours and we walked through this garden together. She was so cute to empathize with me. If you follow her, you know that she moved back in December. And it's kind of strange when you create this amazing garden and then you have to leave it. And then another layer of the strangeness is created when many other people know your garden. In my case, that's a few hundred 
In her case, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Her best advice was just to look forward and not backwards. At the same time, she said that you should really keep a good record of what you've done because you will forget. And you don't think you will, but you will. We all get inspiration from Instagram or Pinterest or wherever you go to see how to do fun things in your garden. She said that actually by looking back at her old garden on Instagram, and her old garden no longer exists, by the way, basically it was removed. But anyway, by looking at old content that she had put on Instagram, she's been inspired to do things in her new garden, like inspired by herself. I'll give you an example of that in a minute. Linda made a YouTube of this garden as we were walking through it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's long, and it's going to be another great memory for me of how it looked before I left it. You know, as I said, no gardens are forever. From that YouTube, I got some new followers, and it's always interesting when somebody goes back to something that you posted a long time ago and likes it or comments on it, and you don't even remember it that well. So someone liked a trick that I did years ago when I had created a new garden out in front of the kitchen here. It was a question of privacy. We needed to have some big shrubs so that people would not peer into the kitchen and see how many cocktails we were drinking. Anyway, I was probably too cheap and too busy to buy all the plants that I wanted to fill that space. So I saw this photograph and was reminded of what I had done that first summer with the new space, and it was just to sink like three or four lime green sweet potato vines. And so there's this sea in this, in this photograph of cheery, bright green ground cover waiting for a better idea of the following fall or the next season or for perennials or whatever I've done. I've done a bunch of things in that space. But it's such a great thing to buy you time. I tried this once in my son's garden up in Connecticut. It was just the space of mulch, which really isn't a garden. Anyway, it turns out that he has some really hungry bunnies or deer, so they never got going. But it generally is a good idea if you can support it. If you have a spot that's just waiting for a better idea or a better time to plant, try one of these cool sweet potato vines because they just go and go and go. And then you have this ground cover and that can, like I said, buy you some time to think about what you really want in a more permanent sense in a bed. I got some information from a friend and really good gardener named Carolyn Achenbach. She just shared something that I thought was so interesting, and so I'm sharing it right back at you. Here you go. It turns out that magnolia trees are so old that they coexisted with dinosaurs. So here's the little snippet she sent me. Life as we know it today is less the result of steady evolutionary flow than a series of cataclysmic fits and starts. To date, the Earth has experienced five mass extinction. And by the way, we're in the six with insects, but let's not go there right now. Also a variety of ice ages and other climactic changes that have had huge impacts on plant and animal life, often wiping the terrestrial slate clean. However, a few incredible survivors live among us, including magnolias. I did not know this. Named for the 17th century French botanist Pierre Magnol, it's estimated that magnolias first sprouted on Earth 95 million years ago, smack dab in the middle of the Cretaceous period. That's about 27 million years before Tyrannosaurus rex roamed the Earth. Back here, where we are in the Holocene, the current geological epoch, the magnolia family's native ranges can be found in East and Southeast Asia, Southern United States, as well as Mexico, Northern South America, and the Caribbean. Because they're so old, they've evolved to be pollinated by beetles and flies instead of bees and butterflies or moss. That's because back in the Cretaceous, those other pollinators just didn't exist yet. So the beautiful magnolia tree and the flightless beetle may seem like an odd couple, but it's a relationship that has worked since the Mesozoic epoch. Isn't that fascinating information? I just thought that was so cool. 
All right, here's a playlist of garden things, how you might want to play in your garden right now in June. If you've got some nice annuals blooming for you, keep up with your deadheading to encourage more blooms. I'm especially cognizant of this with my sweet peas. I've never grown annual sweet peas before, and by some miracle, I got them to come along from seed. All of that nurturing, and I don't want them to stop spitting out beautiful purple blooms that smell like magic markers, simply because I forget to cut them and bring them and sniff the magic marker smell. So I'm going to keep cutting. And how about some pinching? Some of your beautiful annuals will get bushier and not leggier if you pinch them. Some good candidates are dahlias, zinnias, and cosmos. And here's a staking tip. It is so, so much easier to stake a plant that you think will flop before it actually does flop. So walk around with your stake and strings and see what those candidates are up to. I am having so much trouble with bunnies in my front garden this year. And this fantastic idea of growing snapdragons, which I was so pleased to do from seed. Well, they've all been raped and pillaged by these GD little bunnies. But a couple of good things have come out of it. Let's try to be positive, shall we? First of all, because some of the snapdragons got tall fast enough so that the little tiny bunnies couldn't get to them, they are blooming. It does alarm me that these bunnies are growing almost as fast as the snapdragons. But I got to concentrate on things I can control. Anyway, there are some snapdragon blooms and they were so easy to bring from seed and so cheerful. I'm going to continue to do that in my future garden. The other positive is that I remembered that old garden hack that you might want to use. If you have some spots in your garden that are just looking like scorched earth for reasons like bunnies mowing down everything there is or whatever other reason there is, bring a container over and stick it in the middle of the trouble. Something good in a pot will distract the eye. Honestly, the container itself might be good enough for observers to say, uh-huh, I see the intent here, even though upon closer inspection, they might see the truth of the difficult spot, but it's a very good first distraction. All right, what to listen to. Did you ever see that movie, The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman? I've been listening to the music from that, and there's some really great harmony that I've been butchering. I've never been in the possession of a beautiful voice in the first place, but oh my gosh, with this throat. Anyway, listen to that music and certainly don't listen to me. And here's a podcast review mention. Jenny's Iowa Gardening wrote, Listening to Leslie's podcast is like chatting with my best friend who is as crazy about gardening as I am. I always learn something new and she reignites my passion for plants with every episode. Jenny, that is so kind. And what is better than chatting about gardening? This was fun. If you have any questions or comments or corrections, please reach out to me. I am Leslie Harris LH on Instagram. You can go to my website, lhgardens.com. And if you go there, please have a look at the blog that accompanies the podcast and add your comments. Consider buying me a coffee to support the podcast. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and my friend, artist Karen Blair. Hey, Color Blends is a third-generation bulb company offering top-sized flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices. And I am still, in June, mid-June now, enjoying the shape of the tall alliums that have lost their color and enjoying the rich purple color of the latest one to bloom, which I believe is Ambassador. I love my color blends bulbs. So my tagline, I'm really into my garden and I want to get you into yours. Well, I am into my garden and I will be into this garden until the last possible moment. After that, I'm into whatever becomes my next garden and I can't wait to see how this adventure plays out. 